Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles and open to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We've been making our way very slowly through the seventh chapter since the beginning of the year. And today we're going to pick up the pace a little bit and examine a larger pericope. Today, 15 verses, Luke 7, 36 through 50. Title of today's message is The Tale of Two Debtors. Tale of Two Debtors. Let's read the text, Luke 7, 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is, who is touching him, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. And for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his word. Now this is a very famous story, but perhaps you weren't familiar with the setting. You recall that Jesus here in chapter 7 had compared those who rejected John the Baptist's message, and therefore his own message, to spoiled children who were playing in the village square. They would not participate they made accusations against John and Jesus. Remember, John was very different than most people. He lived out in the wilderness. His uh, diet was locust and wild honey. And so the people said of John that he's a, a crazy guy. He has a demon. And Jesus came along and he lived as most people did. He lived in town. He uh, accepted dinner invitations. And so they said, well, he's a partier. He eats with sinners. Well, that much was true. Jesus did eat with sinners. In fact, he associated with uh, the lower rungs of society quite often. When asked about that, Jesus says it's, it's not the well that need a physician, but the sick. So it's not uncommon to find Jesus associating with a group of people that most people would say were very sin sick, tax collectors and prostitutes. Scripture says that Jesus came eating and drinking 
That is, he lived a normal life. Most of us from time to time accept dinner invitations. And here was one of those invitations. A man by the name of Simon, known as Simon the Pharisee, invited Jesus to his house. Now, we don't know much about Simon, but uh, there were Pharisees and then there were Pharisees. Now, we tend to lump all the Pharisees into a negative group. But the truth is, there were some good Pharisees. Uh, a man like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who was sincere in his desire to know more about uh, the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, many of the Pharisees were always looking for an opportunity to trip Jesus up, to catch him in some sin. And apparently that was the case with this invitation. As we'll see, Simon's heart was not warm towards the things of God. He was not only legalistic, he took great pride in his own achievements. Now, Simon was an extremely common name in those days. You could probably name half a dozen or more men named Simon in the New Testament off the top of your head. Jesus had some disciples named Simon. In the book of Acts, we're introduced to a number of men named Simon. But there are two gospel episodes that feature this woman with an alabaster box. And because both of the men in the story are named Simon... And because the women both have an alabaster box of perfume, sometimes we confuse them into one episode. There were actually two. The four Gospels tell us the story of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who lived in a little village called Bethany. You remember that Mary and Martha and Lazarus became great friends of the Lord Jesus. And anytime he was near to Jerusalem, he would stay at their house. One of the more famous episodes in the New Testament is when Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, passed away. And Jesus came four days late, they thought, and he called Lazarus forth from the dead, and indeed he came forth. This happened just shortly before Jesus' uh, crucifixion. That's this event where Mary, out of her love and thanks for what Christ had done for her and for her family, takes this alabaster box of perfume. Now, alabaster was... Um, sort of like marble. And they would seal this box on the four corners so that it would hold in this aromatic spice. And it was extremely valuable. You remember that Mary actually broke open the bottle and just dumped it out over Jesus. And Judas, who was the treasurer of the 12 apostles, said, Lord, rebuke this woman because we could have taken and sold this perfume and given the money to the poor. And Jesus says, the poor you have with you always. Now, this is a different episode here. This unnamed woman, all we're told of her is that she was a sinner here in Luke chapter 7. This occurred about a year or so before Jesus' crucifixion. Look at verse 37. It talks about this sinful woman. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, we're not even told the specifics of her sin, but if you have a different translation of the Bible than the one I just read from, it's likely that the word sin is replaced with sexual immorality. Her sin was sexual in nature, and it is probably not stretching the text too much to assume that indeed she was a prostitute. Now, we have quite a contrast here. We have, on one hand, the man whose home Jesus was in, Simon, who was a Pharisee. The word Pharisee means separate. The Pharisees prided themselves that they were separate from sin and sinners. They would have nothing to do 
with a woman such as this who had such a terrible reputation. In fact, they believed that the path of salvation was the path of personal achievement. And then on the other hand, you have this woman who has uh, a sinner, a great sinner. She knows it and everyone in town knows it. You might have recognized that the title of the message today, A Tale of Two Debtors, is a takeoff on the old Charles Dickens novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And remember, the very famous first line of that book is this, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Well, here in this dining hall, we have the best of sinners and the worst of sinners. The best of sinners was the Pharisee who was morally upright and was um, sure that he didn't need a savior. And then you had the worst of sinners, a prostitute who was quite sure that she needed a savior. But you'll notice that both of them are sinners. One views himself as equal to Jesus, perhaps even superior, and the other views herself as a humble servant of Christ. You'll notice that Jesus is reclining at the same table as the Pharisee. In those days, their customs were very much different than ours today. We tend to sit upright in chairs when we have a meal, um, especially when we have guests over. And in those days, they had very low tables and uh, they reclined on their elbows on pillows and their feet would be behind them. Your feet would be this, this way and your heads would be close together for intimacy. And, and so before you ate though, if you were a guest of honor at a house, there were some things that needed to be done to show respect to you in the ancient world. First is that the owner of the home should give you a kiss when you come into the house on the face, on the cheek. They still do this in many parts of the world, as you know. In fact, the Bible talks about Christians greeting one another with the holy kiss, that is with respect and reverence. And then the lowest servant of the house would come and wash your feet. Now this was more than a ritual and a ceremony. It had practical application. As you know, in those days, uh, the sanitation was not like it is today. Most of the streets were dirty and dusty. Most people wore open-toed sandals. They didn't travel by automobile. And so they got the dust of the world on them wherever they went. And so it was a sign of respect for your guests to have the lowest servant in the house wash the guest's feet. Now you're probably thinking now of the episode in Jesus' ministry the night of his arrest where they had gathered in the upper room to take of the Passover meal. They were mingling and mixing and most likely the apostles were having the same conversation they often did. That is, they were discussing among themselves which one of them was the greatest. And as they were speaking to one another, Jesus took a basin of water and a towel. And the scripture says he girded up his robes, got down on his hands and knees and one by one he began to go around to his disciples and washing their feet. And I can imagine a holy hush settled over that room. As people wondered, what in the world is the master washing our feet for? This is the job of the lowest slave. Well, Jesus, of course, was teaching them a great lesson, and that is of humility. For the entire three and a half years that he had walked and talked the earth with them, he had repeatedly told them that the least shall be greatest and the greatest the last. And so he gets to Simon Peter the spokesman for the 12. And Peter tries to stop Jesus and he says, not so Lord, you're not gonna wash my feet. He was showing, I guess, some feigned humility. And Jesus says, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have no part of me. And so Peter says, well, just, just dump the base over my head. Give me a bath. 
And Jesus said, because he, he was teaching a spiritual lesson here, that he who has had a bath doesn't need another bath. He just needs to have his feet washed. He was talking about salvation. If you've been born again, if you've been saved, your sins have been forgiven, you don't have to get resaved every time you sin. But going through life, we get the dust of the world on our feet. And we need to constantly be confessing our sins to the Lord, not so that we don't lose our salvation, that would be impossible, but so that we can stay in constant communication and fellowship with our Heavenly Father. And so Jesus comes into this house of Simon the Pharisee and no one washes his feet. It's a sign of disrespect. And the third thing that should have happened is that he should have had his head anointed with oil because he was such a respected teacher. But none of those things had happened. So this unnamed woman emerges from the shadows and she begins to do all of these things. The Bible says she, she kissed his dirty feet. Can you imagine? What an act of humility that is. And, and she's not doing this for show. I, I take this, she's simply overwhelmed with emotion. She can't help herself. And she just instinctively begins to kiss Jesus' feet, not his face, which was the sign of respect, but his feet. And his feet had not yet been washed. And we're told that his feet were washed not by the basin of water, but by her tears. She's just streaming tears down her face. And can't you imagine as those tears dropped on the ankles and the feet of the Lord and the dust was stream away. She didn't have a towel with her showing that this was just uh, something that she did instinctively and, and maybe not even planned it. And so without a towel, she takes her hair, her glory, the Bible says, and, and begins to dry his feet with that. What, what a beautiful scene this is. And you would think that Simon, seeing this, would have been convicted that he didn't do that, shamed by it even, but he wasn't. In fact, as often happens with the prideful, rather than being shamed, he was confirmed in his doubt. Scripture says he thought within himself, if Jesus was a true prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is, and he'd stop this, because that's what he would have done, right? If some prostitute tried to touch him, he would separate himself because he was a Pharisee, but, but Jesus doesn't. So he says, he, he must not be a true prophet. Well, the, the irony is that Jesus was more than a prophet. He's God in the flesh. And one of the attributes you know about God is that he is omniscient. He knows everything. So he knew not only that this woman was a prostitute, he knew the evil thoughts and intents of Simon's heart as well. Now, I never read this story that I don't think about something that happened my senior year of high school. One afternoon in our senior year, the intercom speaker came on and the principal said, meet me in the auditorium in 10 minutes, senior class. And so uh, we gratefully left English Lit and went down to meet the principal in the auditorium. And he said, today is the day that we're going to accept nominations for class favorites. And we're going to elect the most likely to succeed, the most athletic. He went down the list and he got to most dependable. And when he said most dependable, my very good friend sitting at my table began to chuckle within himself. And I could tell he was going to do something dumb. <laughs> and so we nominated most likely to succeed and most athletic. And when it got to most dependable, he blurted out a name of a girl in our class who was known for her sexual promiscuity. Said she's the most dependable girl I've ever met. 
I never shall forget how the blood drained out of her face. And she ran out of the room in tears. And to our principal's great credit, he gave my friend the tongue lashing of his life, which he richly deserved. I never read this story. I don't think about that girl. And, and how she was devastated by her own reputation. Well, this woman was de devastated by her own reputation. And because of that humility, she came to Jesus because Jesus had offered her forgiveness, had offered her mercy and grace. Now, this story is strange to our ears and eyes because it's so different than how we do things. See, in the ancient world, a dinner party was a public event. Now, they didn't have a lot of entertainment, apparently, in those days. And so if a wealthy person gave a dinner party, everybody came, even if you didn't have an invitation. Those who had an invitation would be seated at the table of honor, but other people could sit around the edges of the walls on pillows and couches, and you could actually engage in conversation with the guest of honor. And so when it, wherever Jesus was, people would come just to ask him questions and, and to talk to him. So this woman sort of infiltrated the mass of people who had come in, and, and when the time was right, she emerged from one of those corners and, and begins to weep and to wash Jesus' feet and, and to dry with, with her own hair. And Jesus seizes upon this opportunity, as he always did, to teach a great spiritual lesson. And that's our third point, which is the story. Remember I told you this is a tale of two debtors? Well, here's the story that Jesus tells. He says, a moneylender, verse 41, had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. See, a parable doesn't have to be long or complex. In this case, it's only two sentences long. But in those two sentences, we're introduced to three characters. First of all is a money lender. The money lender in this case obviously is a reference to God himself. And then the two other characters are debtor number one and debtor number two. Debtor number one is said to have owed 500 denarii. A denarii was a unit of money that was equivalent to one day's wages for a common laborer. And so you could be expected to work about 250 days in a calendar year. And so this man owed two full years' salary. Well, that would be an almost impossible task for people in those days to ever hope to pay back. Well, the other person only owed 50 denarii, 50 days' wages, a much smaller number. And the Scripture says both of them had something in common. Neither of them was able to pay it back on time. And the money lender forgave them both graciously. What a simple but beautiful story. And so Jesus uses that story, incorporates the Socratic method, and he asked Simon, the host of the dinner, a simple question. Simon, which one of those two debtors will love the money lender the most? Well, the obvious answer is the one who was forgiven the most. And so Simon pipes up and said, I suppose it's the one who was forgiven the most. Scripture says, verse 43, and he said to him, you have judged correctly. Now, I suspect at this moment, Simon perked up because Jesus said in other places of the Pharisees is that they loved to be honored. They loved to be recognized in the city streets and in the marketplace. They loved to have the seat of honor at the dining table. And so Simon probably originally thinks Jesus is about to brag on me. That's not the case. 
Turning towards the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Now, now Jesus does something here that I've seen my father do to me a thousand times. He corrected my behavior by addressing his remarks to a third party in the room. I remember once uh, when I was in my early 20s, I was pastoring a little church in Mississippi. I was also uh, teaching public school full time and coaching three sports. And so I'll say my excuse is I didn't have a lot of time to be a tidy housekeeper. And so in the midst of the spring football practice, I had scheduled a revival at the little church I was pastoring. I invited my father to be the guest speaker. And my very good friend who was a coaching buddy of mine was a great musician. I invited him to lead the worship. And so he and I worked together, my friend and I. And so we had to rush home after football practice, take a quick shower and go immediately to the church. Well, I had forgotten that my father had a key to my house. And so we were running late and uh, I had a real pain in my stomach when I topped the hill and saw my father's car parked in my driveway because my plan was to quickly clean up the house before he came in. And I opened the door to find my father with his dress shirt rolled up to his biceps, angrily washing the dishes in my sink. And he didn't address me, he addressed my friend Kevin and he said, Kevin, I never will forget what he said. He said, Kevin, I would rather have my dinner on the back of a dead mule than in this house. And I never see my friend Kevin, that he doesn't remind me of that. <laughs> That's what Jesus is doing. He's rebuking one person by addressing another. He's looking at the woman, but speaking to Simon. And he says, Simon, you were supposed to give me a kiss of greeting. You were supposed to have someone wash my feet. You were supposed to anoint my head with oil. You did none of that. And yet this woman did, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. You see, the way to salvation is the way of humility. It's not the path of personal achievement and attainment. And that was the great lesson that, that Jesus was teaching here. Some have read this and thought, well, Jesus is saying this woman achieved salvation by her acts of contrition. No, she didn't. And that's made clear because Jesus later on in this passage says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And, and that's really our fourth and final point, the salvation. When I speak of salvation, I'm speaking of the forgiveness of sins because that is the essence of salvation. See, the reason we need salvation is that we are dead in trespasses and sins. In fact, Romans chapter 5 says, by virtue of being descendants of our first parent, Adam, we are born into the world, enemies of God and guilty. The Bible further says as soon as we're able, personally, we are sinners not only by nature, but sinners by choice. And so you have a tale of two sinners here. It's not just that little story that Jesus told. It's, it's the woman and it's the Pharisee. Both are sinners. Both are debtors. One is poor in spirit. One is not. You remember in the great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Now, what in the world does that mean? After all, in our culture, we instruct our young people to have a positive view of themselves. What does it mean to be poor of spirit? Well, it means to recognize the truth about yourself spiritually is that you have not one thing that God needs. You don't have any negotiating leverage when it comes to your eternal soul. And the only thing you can do is to recognize that and to come to Him on His terms, as I've often said, with outturned pockets and upturned hands and a bowed head and declare, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Now, which of these two people exhibited that kind of attitude? It was not the Pharisee. It was the prostitute. And so Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, peace is a concept that is all but forgotten in our world. We see on the news not only military campaigns abroad, but we see turmoil in our homes. We see violence in our schools, as we tragically saw again this week. We see disunity and hostility on every hand. Jesus is not just talking about in our interpersonal relationships. Fundamentally, he's saying you now have peace with God. Remember, we're born into the world hostile to God, but he has made a way where we can have peace. Jesus, the Bible says, is our peace. He purchased that peace through his shed blood on the cross. And this woman had put her faith and trust, not in herself, not in her own ability to reform or to change, but in the person and work of Christ. Here we have in microcosm the two reactions to the gospel that I mentioned last week. Remember Paul says that uh, wherever the gospel is taken, we carry an aroma, a scent of the gospel with us. And though it's the same aroma, people have two different reactions to it. Some people come in contact with the gospel and it's the sweetest smell they've ever smelled. They're instantly attracted to it. They can't get enough. On the other hand, those who have hardened their heart to the things of God are repelled and repulsed by that aroma. In fact, it, it makes them have nausea. Not this woman. She loved it. It was the sweetest smell she'd ever smelled and she wanted to be around Christ all the time. Paul says the gospel to the Jews is a stumbling block. Now when Paul referred to the Jews, almost always he was referring to a particular group of Jewish men, that is the scribes and the Pharisees. And by the way, Paul at one time was right in the middle, a leader of the Pharisees. Do you remember how Paul described himself pre-conversion? He says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, as touching the law blameless. Paul would have been welcomed with open arms by Simon, probably would have scooched over and given Paul a, more, uh, a place of honor even greater than himself. And Paul says this simple gospel is a stumbling block to those kind of people. Why? Because to come to Jesus, you have to recognize that you are on the same spiritual ground as this prostitute. In fact, it goes... We should not go without noticing here that this is a woman. And the Pharisees seem to have disdain for women. In fact, many of the Pharisees would often pray a prayer like this publicly. Don't blame me, I'm just repeating. They would say, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile or a woman. 
Those were the, the two conditions they thought would be about the worst thing they could think of was to be a Gentile or a woman. And, and, and I laugh every time I hear a non-believer talk about Christ or Christianity in terms of repressing women. No one ever did more to advance the cause of women than Jesus Christ. In fact, I, I can give you many examples in the New Testament where he elevated women and he honored women. There, there's about three stories right away. One here is this woman with an alabaster box of perfume, but I'm thinking also of the woman at the well, do you remember? Who also had a bad reputation. Jesus comes and sits beside her and asks her for a drink of water. And she says, how do you, being a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? She was shocked that he would even speak to her. And then he began to tell her about herself. And he asked her a question. says, uh, where's your husband? She said, I have no husband. He said, you rightly said you have no husband. You've been married five times. And the man you're with now is not even your husband. And they began to have a spiritual conversation. And she said, our ancestors worship on this mountain. And yours worship in Jerusalem. Who's right? And Jesus knew she was just trying to distract from the real issue, which was her own sinfulness. And he said, there's coming a time where they won't worship in either because God is looking for true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then He offered her living water and she accepted and she was saved and born again and she ran to town to tell everyone to come and meet the Savior. And then I'm thinking of uh, that woman who was caught in adultery. The Bible says in the very act. And, and from the context of the story, it's pretty obvious this was a setup. They're trying to catch Jesus, and so they drag this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery before Jesus, and they say, Master, Moses says she's to be put to death. What do you say? Jesus was stooped down writing with his finger in the dirt, and I heard one preacher say one time that he was writing the phone numbers of the girlfriends of these men. <laughs> and you remember what he said? He said, let he is without sin cast the first stone. And the Bible said one by one they began to go out from the oldest down to the youngest until Jesus was left alone with the woman. He says, woman, where are thine accusers? She said, they're not here. He said, neither do I accuse thee. Go and sin no more. Now, now here's something important to remember. In all three of these cases, the woman with the alabaster box of perfume, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, in none of those episodes does Jesus deny their sinfulness. He doesn't sweep it under the rug or pretend it doesn't exist. He addresses it directly. He said, go and sin no more. He said to that woman, you're living in sin, the woman at the well. And this woman, he, he knows all about her. He doesn't have to say it overtly. She knows and he knows and everybody in the room knows what her sin is. But he says, your sins are forgiven based on your faith. I think there's some wonderful application we can make this, both for unsaved people and for saved. For, for those of you who are here today and you don't know the Lord as Savior, you need to understand that Jesus came to earth on a rescue mission. It's a pretty popular notion that, that Jesus was sort of a social activist. And, and some have even read this and other stories like this in the Bible and say, ah, Jesus was a feminist. He was trying to advance the cause of women. Well, he did advance the cause of women, but that was not his purpose. 
That was a side benefit. Others have said, well, he's speaking for the poor and the oppressed. He's a political activist. And Jesus, of course, did always speak up for those who didn't have a voice in society. But that was not his purpose. Jesus described his purpose this way. He said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus left heaven on a specific rescue mission. And here's the thing. If that Jesus is going to rescue you, the first thing you have to do is to admit you need to be rescued. If you took lifeguard training, you know the very first thing they told you and the thing they told you every day until you graduated was you cannot save someone who thinks they can save themselves. They will fight you. They will do everything in their power to convince you that they do not need to be rescued. But once you go limp, once you give up, once you recognize you can't do one thing to save yourself, it's an easy thing to take that person to safety. Well, this woman had given up. Probably long ago she recognized that she was hopeless and helpless. And then one day, and we're not even told when, she came in contact with Jesus. She heard his message of grace and mercy and forgiveness and she received it and every time she saw him she was overwhelmed and she had to worship him friends this is a story of worship you say well this isn't for me i've been saved for years it is for you if you've been saved for years because it tells us a lot about how we're to worship jesus first of all do you notice that this woman was not easily deterred from worshiping christ She didn't let the crowd, she didn't let her own reputation, she didn't allow the fact that she was a woman in a culture that disdained women stop her. She had to get to Jesus and she had to worship him. I'm amazed from Sunday to Sunday of how easily we are deterred from worshiping. Jack Gatewood, one of our associate pastors, has a little ditty he sings every time it rains a little bit on Sunday morning. He says, for every drop of rain that falls, a Baptist turns over and goes back to sleep. (laughs) Brethren, that ought not to be. It ought to be the highlight of our week together corporately with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We we ought not be easily deterred. And, and, And then when she got to Jesus, she was focused on Jesus with laser like focus. I can't tell you how many times I've I've stood there singing Amazing Grace on the front pew of First Baptist Church of Keller and my mind is a thousand miles away. I'm thinking about some committee meeting I had. I'm thinking about some ball game I watched the night before. I'm like a squirrel dog, just easily distracted by everything around it. This woman was not. She was focused with laser-like precision on the person of Jesus Christ. And I think the Probably the most important lesson we can learn about worship from this woman is that her worship was focused on giving rather than getting. Giving rather than getting. The scripture says that it's more blessed to give than to receive. That is true when it comes to worship. How many times do we leave a worship service and we we go to a restaurant or a friend's home to eat and the question is asked, did you get anything out of the service? Well, a better question is, did you give anything in the service? Did, did you give the Lord Jesus your attention? Did you give him your confessed sin? Did you give him your attention so that you could be equipped by the word to go out and be salt and light in this community? This woman gave. She gave the most valuable thing she had, this 
alabaster box of perfume, and it, it did not escape the Lord Jesus' notice. All Simon gave was a meal, and, and that was motivated of trying to advance his own career, apparently. See, when we truly worship Jesus, when we come to understand who he is, the closer we stand near to him, the clearer our own sin becomes. You say, well, it's so obvious a woman who's a prostitute to recognize her sinfulness. Well, remember that Apostle Paul I mentioned earlier who gave his resume, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, Hebrew of the Hebrews, is touching the law blameless. Listen to what he wrote years after his conversion, 1 Timothy 1.15. He's writing a letter to the young pastor Timothy, and this is what he says. Timothy, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's just declaring that mission that Jesus was on. He left the glories of heaven to live a perfect life, to die the atoning death on the cross, to be raised on the third day to save sinners. So let's read that verse again. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, comma, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul said, Timothy, you will never meet a greater sinner than the Apostle Paul. Now that's not false humility. That's really the way Paul lived his life. I think every day of his life, he had the memory of holding the coats of those men who stoned to death Stephen. Paul knew that even though externally he could be accepted in the highest religious circles, God knew his heart that he was a rebel and a sinner and a murderer. You say, well, I've never killed anybody. I've never committed sexual sin like this woman. Well, Jesus anticipated that would be the response of a lot of moral people. And so this is what he said. You have heard it said of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've looked upon a woman to lust, you've already committed adultery. See, it's not just the the external, the heinous, overt sin that makes us guilty before God. It's our wicked heart. The Bible says of the human heart that it's exceedingly wicked. And who could ever hope to comprehend or understand it? So maybe you've not been arrested. Maybe you don't have that reputation of my friend in high school. Or maybe the, the world looks at you and say, that's a model citizen. But in your heart, you know you've fallen short of the glory of God. You're a sinner. You're, you're in the same category as Simon the Pharisee and the woman with the alabaster box of perfume and the thief on the cross and every other sinner who's ever walked the face of the earth. Here's the glorious good news. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. A murderer on death row, a soccer mom, preacher. Whoever will submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and receive His atoning work in your place on the cross, He'll hear your prayer. He'll forgive your sin. He'll give you a home in heaven. He'll give you the indwelling presence of Spirit, of His Holy Spirit in your heart. And He'll give you a peace that passes human comprehension. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for this story. And it reminds me of Your forgiveness. Father, all of us need forgiveness. 
all of us are sinners and fall so short of your glory. And Lord, some have perhaps fallen deeper into sin than others, but the truth is all of us are wet. All of us, Father, are drowning. So Father, you offer life. You offer forgiveness. So Father, I pray if there's even one in this room who came into this worship service prideful and self-dependent, believing that the, the path of salvation was the path of personal achievement, that Father, you would uh, devastate them today with the truth that the only hope they have is simple, humble faith in Christ. We thank you for the example of this woman and of her worship that was undeterred and focused. Father, may our worship every day, not just on Sunday, reflect our great love for you and our understanding of how much our sin cost you. So Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his shed blood. Thank you for the peace that is ours because of what he did in our place. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.